I invite you now to turn in your Bibles with me to John chapter 12. We'll diverge for our purposes this week, and of course uh, next week with Easter Sunday, we'll diverge from our, our series in Exodus that we've been doing since the beginning of the year, actually. And we'll take a look this morning at John chapter 12, a passage that deals with the triumphal entry a little bit differently than some of the other Gospels do. Here it is set particularly in light of what Jesus has just done, what we read about in John 11, with the raising up of Lazarus. So we see this triumphal entry set in that context as crowds are gathering together. And we really begin now moving into this Easter week where we'll celebrate and remind ourselves on Thursday night of the upper room, the time that Jesus spent with his disciples there, leading in, of course, to Friday, Good Friday, the the death of Jesus. And then the celebration and rejoicing of of Jesus' victory over death on Easter Sunday. We're really going to spend some time in a very focused way on the hub, the, the core, the centerpiece of our Christian faith, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, as we begin to move into that important week, that crucial week for all humanity and for our salvation, the, uh, the, the plot is thickening. The tension is heightening. And the storm is gathering, if you will, even as Jesus comes in in the midst of shouts of praise and loud hosannas. And so too, today, we want to take a look at what it means for Jesus to be entering into our lives. What does it mean for Him to come and enter triumphantly into our lives? And certainly the ways that we don't receive Him. Uh, We've already mentioned in this worship service the same crowds that sing His praise this particular Palm Sunday are crying out for His crucifixion later in the week. And it's a stark reminder that our hearts are sometimes so ready to follow the Lord, so ready to praise Him, and yet when He doesn't look the way that we expect Him to, when He doesn't work in our lives the way that we really feel like He should, we turn from that. We respond in a way uh, just as those crowds and are prone to reject Him, if not vocally, at least in our hearts, to move away from him. So with that in mind, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word. I'll read aloud as you all read along silently. uh, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. You may be seated. 
As you do, let's pray again. Oh, Father, we praise you again this week for your word, for truth from you about these things that took place so long ago and yet have very direct importance to each one of us today. Come, Holy Spirit, dwell in our time in your word. Teach us through it that we might be strengthened, that we might come to more readily understand your triumphant kingship over us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the early 1940s, John Bassalone was an unknown Marine from New Jersey. By the end of World War II, Bassalone would be a household name across the entire country. Bassalone would single-handedly, in the Battle of Guadalcanal, with a machine gun in hand, fight off some 3,000, this is not an exaggeration, 3,000 of the enemy attackers. Not surprisingly, he received the Medal of Honor. The Marines decided to bring him off the battlefield back to the States in order to promote the war effort. And when he went around the country to each city and town, huge crowds gathered for this triumphant hero. The crowd was particularly massive in his relatively small town of Raritan, New Jersey, where 50,000 people gathered on the streets to hear and to see their hero come through. Well, the Marines and maybe the American populace had a plan for Barcelona, what they wanted him to do, and he probably could have reasonably ridden that out for the rest of the war, touring, and in that sense, helping the war effort by promoting what was going on. But he had another plan, another mission for his life. So after a little while, he requested that he be returned to active service on the battlefield. And the whole nation was shocked when his plan turned out to be different than their plan for their hero as he was killed in the first few days of the Battle of Iwo Jima. I think about that story about Barcelona, and it gives us a little bit of a picture, some kind of understanding of what we're dealing with as Jesus comes in, announces himself as a king, as a ruler, as a leader of God's people. Of course, over the years, Jesus, his name had become a household name as well. People knew of him. And in particular, this setting, we see that he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so, as our passage indicates, people are gathering together because he's done this wonderful sign. Let's just see what happens. Let's gather together to see what Jesus will do. Large crowds gathered outside of what we might call one of his hometowns, his divine father's dwelling place, the city of Jerusalem, for him to come in. And, of course, as we look at these verses, we see that his mission, just like Barcelona's, was decidedly different 
than the mission that other people had for him or might have wanted for him. And so the question for us today as we look at these verses and think about Jesus' triumphal entry, his kingship, is what's our purpose for Jesus? What do we want Jesus to be doing in our lives? What kind of rescue do we want him to provide? And how does that contrast with the actual mission that Jesus has for himself? We want to take a look at that as we walk through these verses. If you want to, you can follow along in your bulletin. There's a section with an outline on the back of the bulletin. The main idea then, I think, that we see is is Jesus comes as a triumphant king. And I know we talked a few weeks ago about the, the call to respond in praise to him. We see it, though, here again in these verses. And so we, too, are called to respond in praise to Jesus' kingship. When we talk about... Praising Jesus, you know, it's easy to kind of, well, are we going to go sit on a cloud somewhere and strum on a harp? Is that what, is that what praise to Jesus is? Certainly we know what we're doing here in our worship service, gathering together, singing songs. I hope we're learning to sing out and sing loudly and sing in praise, even if you're like me and you can't sing very well to, to sing because we know who Jesus is. We know he's our king. That's certainly part of it. But when we speak about a life of praise, about responding in praise to the kingship of Jesus, we're really talking about all of life. Everything that we do, our, our work, our friendships, our entertainment, our family time, our whatever it is that we do that we, as uh, Eric Little said in, famously in the Chariots of Fire movie and said in actuality that when he runs he feels God's pleasure, that we'd take a jog and we would do it for God's pleasure and praise, that everything we would do would be an honor and praise to him. I think it was Augustine who first said that God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God's made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. God's made us for his praise, to live out our lives for his glory, the desire to see him glorified in us. And so we find our rest, we find our joy ultimately in doing that. So we look at these verses, we see two big dangers or threats that could come in place to, to derail that. One is obviously just to fail completely to respond in any way to Jesus in praise. Now, we've got these crowds gathered together, and so the crowds at, at least understood that there was something about Jesus. However misunderstood they may have been, they understood there was something to go out and see, that he was worthy of attention. So the contrast would be just to completely ignore Jesus entirely. And that's one danger we can see identified in these verses, but probably something a little bit closer to home for a number of us in here, myself included, is the danger of praising Jesus, of wanting to live a life of praise to Jesus, but of not really understanding what we're praising him for, not really praising him from the heart, not really understanding his mission for our lives, his mission for our salvation, as opposed to our mission for him. That's what we want to talk about today. We're going to use four points to help us 
get at that, to try to see what is it about Jesus as the triumphant king that makes him so worthy of praise, and how is it that he corrects us in our praise? First thing we see, we worship Jesus as triumphant king because he provides our salvation in the way that we need it, not necessarily in the way that we want it. Look at verse 13 of John 12. It says, The people took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Hosanna! That phrase means something to us. It's just, a, oh, that's something we say on Palm Sunday every year, right? Well, if you ever look it up and actually see what it means, it means, God, save us. Come and rescue us. We need your help. So it's a cry of praise, but inside that cry of praise is a cry of need. We need you to do something for us. And it's understandable a little bit that the people might have been confused. If you want to turn over with me to Jeremiah 30, you can, or if not, I'll just read it to you. In Jeremiah chapter 30, it describes some of what the Messiah is supposed to be doing. And it says in Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and following, it says, And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke, talking about a foreign leader, a foreign ruler, off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, be not dismayed. Behold, I will save you from far away. And then verse 11, for I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. What's the picture here? The picture here is of one who comes in a, in a military way that's going to rescue, and in particular with Israel sitting under Rome's oppressive reign at this time, but people cannot wait to have this burden lifted. So as Jesus comes in, and certainly we see it in the disciples earlier in the Gospels, they're all looking for some kind of military rescue, for someone to free them from Rome. And it's not bad, it's not wrong that they're looking for that, but it's like a cap. It's like a lid on their vision of who God is. It's like they've got a roof over them and there's a whole sky of beauty to see. There's this cap blocking them from being able to see all of what he wants to do. And in fact, elsewhere in the Old Testament, we're told what he plans to do and how he plans to do it. So they're expecting this military leader. How has Jesus even already told them that he plans to come and save them? Look, if, if you would, in Isaiah 53, if you want to turn there, as just a little bit before Jeremiah, not too far after the Psalms. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 5, tells us what kind of salvation Jesus plans to give us and how he plans to secure it. But he was wounded, Jesus was, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his stripes we are healed. All we Like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. How's he going to carry it out? Is it through a great military victory like we would think? No, 
He's going to carry it out through offering his own life up as a sacrifice. The, the victory, the picture of victory is still here, though. Look with me on down to, to verse 11. Okay, we haven't lost that picture. Verse 11 says, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Then in verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. It's a picture of a triumphant king, absolutely. But it's a picture that comes in a pathway that's different from what we would like. And it's a picture that means that we have a Savior who says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, I will be your righteousness. You read about it here. He's, he's going to take on him the iniquities of us all. But that picture also comes and bids us to lose our life in order to save it. This salvation involves a suffering, sacrificing servant king. And we don't like that. We don't like that because it means we've got to walk in that pathway as well if we're going to follow this king. We also don't like it because it, it kind of just, it's not necessarily what we think is most important. Jesus comes and says, the most important thing for you is not that I free you Israelites from Rome. The most important thing is that I free you from sin and death. And oh, by the way, do that for all the rest of humanity that, that would look to me and trust in me. So Jesus says he's going to do that, but it's not necessarily what we think is most important. What are the things that we think we really need to be saved from today? Well, those things that are competing with Jesus' plan. Got to be, got to be saved from this recession, don't we? We got to get out from under that. We got to be, we got to be saved from Al Qaeda and the Taliban and Whoever wants to threaten our national security, we, we've got to be saved from those things. Uh, maybe, we, maybe we feel like we really just need to be saved. Just simply, I've got to be saved from my job. I'm just so tired of this job. Or to get a little closer to home, we feel like we need to be saved, maybe some of us, from this marriage. Those are the things that we think are most important and Jesus reminds us by his triumphal entry that he comes to save us from what's far more important. It's not that he doesn't care about those things. It's not that we can't pray for those things, but he cares most importantly that we be saved from our worst enemy, from the thing that threatens us the most, and that is sin and its consequence, death. That's the kind of salvation he provides. That's the kind of king that he is. So what do we think today? Where is our praise for Jesus decreased because he's selling something, salvation from sin, but we're not buying it? Doesn't seem to us to be the most important thing. The very nature of him coming, the very nature of Easter week is him declaring, this is the most important thing. Come and praise to me, but let your praise be informed by my life offered up on behalf of sin, that you might have righteousness, be declared righteous before a holy God. Second thing we see, his salvation that comes, his kingship that comes, is in a fulfillment 
of prophecies that have come before. So it's a prophetic fulfillment. So he comes to provide salvation. We ought to praise him. He comes in fulfillments of, of prophecy. We ought to praise him. Look back with me again at, at our passage in, uh, in John. John chapter 12. I know we're jumping around a little bit. Hang with me. John chapter 12, verse 13. 15, I'm sorry. It references a verse of Scripture. Just as it is written, it says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You don't need to turn there, but I will turn to Zechariah chapter 9 in the Old Testament to show you this is a fulfillment of things that were spoken long before Jesus walked the earth. Rejoice greatly, it says, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's take a few minutes and talk about two important ways that Jesus fulfills this prophecy and therefore ought to to draw forth from us great praise to him. The first is in humility. There's a picture here of humility. Anybody that's ever seen anybody riding around on a donkey that's kind of riding along next to a horse or a larger creature, you realize a little contrast there. Now, this was actually the way that the kings of Israel would ride in. So it was the pattern that had been set before Jesus came. And it was a picture of two things. We're going to talk in a minute about It's a picture of kingly rule. There's no doubt about it, coming as king, and yet it's also a humble picture. Riding on a donkey instead of a stallion is proclaiming that there's a humility that the king of Israel ultimately comes under God. As we think about this picture of humility and Jesus coming into our world, my mind is drawn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where we get a picture of, of Jesus coming to save us and the pathway that he goes for it. And his pathway is one of humility, of servanthood. In fact, Philippians 2 says that our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped or clung to, but instead made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in appearance as a man, and that he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient to death even on a cross, that at the name of Jesus every tongue in heaven and on earth and under the earth shall confess that he is Lord and every knee shall bow to him as Lord. That's the picture of Jesus coming. And when he comes, he's fulfilling what Zechariah tells us about, and he is showing us a pattern, a pathway to praise in him, that pathway of of humbly submitting our life before him. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. There's a picture of humility in this fulfillment here that challenges us and raises again the question for us that as we see this humble king, laying down his life for us. What is our response? What is our attitude of praise this Easter week? That's the second point. The third point is tied to that, really a flip side of it. If if the second point is about the humility of Christ, the third point is his kingship. Make no mistake about it. 
when he comes in riding on this donkey, as humble as a picture as it seems to us, it is at the same time a picture of his kingship. He is saying, I am the king of Israel. And as you know, if you know anything about the events of the week of Easter, he would constantly be asked, interrogated even, even mocked with a crown of thorns and a mocking robe, even on the cross mocked for his declaration that he was the king of the Jews, that he was the king of Israel. So this proclamation is clear. And what I want you to see here this morning is that Jesus is purposeful. He's intentional with what he's doing. And the reason that's important for us is if he's purposeful and intentional about this monumental thing, coming in to provide salvation, then he's purposeful and intentional about everything that happens in the life of one of his children. He is not confused. He's not blundering into Jerusalem. He doesn't accidentally get grabbed off the street. He's intending to go to his death and so that he can bring about the victory over sin. He is, as I put on your sheet, he is picking a fight. shouldn't see this any other way. He's coming in, he's saying, I'm the king, and I'm picking a fight. I don't know how many of y'all have uh, picked a fight in your life. I haven't done it too many times. I know this is going to terribly ruin your perspective of me. Parents, if you need to, you can cover the, oh, the kids' ears. I don't think this would be too bad. But uh, junior high. Chris Peters, 90 pounds, maybe five foot. We'll see. We had uh, on the Lincoln Junior High School playground, Chris Stein. And Chris Stein was the biggest bully of the playground you could imagine. And he came around one day, and you'd always have some kind of trouble with him this particular day. He came along. A couple of my buddies and I were simply throwing a ball back and forth, and he took the ball from me. I tried to stop him, twisted my arm behind his back, and kind of threw me to the ground. All 90 pounds of me had had enough of this bullying. I decided I was going to go pick a fight. And the interesting thing is that I really didn't have any idea what I was going to do or how I was going to do it. Never had actually thrown a punch to really try to hurt anybody. And yet the crowds and the people that gathered around, amazingly, when I hadn't even told anybody I was going to pick this fight, already a circle had gathered around. And there he was across on the other side, had me by a good number of pounds and probably by a good number of inches. And all of a sudden, as I was trying to come up with a plan for why I had gotten myself in this circle to begin with, someone shoved me from behind. Well, apparently... Chris Stein didn't really know anything about fighting either because all we did was kind of roll on the ground, come up with a few scrapes and bruises. And the next thing I remember was that feel of the cold vinyl seat in the principal's office as I was handed the phone to make an important call that I was strongly encouraged to make to Steve and Letty Peters to inform them that their son would be Spending a little extra time at home with mom over the next few days. (laughs) That's how my attempt at picking a fight ended. That's the results of it. When Jesus comes and picks a fight 
When he comes to say that I'm going to come as king and I'm going to rescue my people, I'm going to deliver them from their worst enemy, sin and death, he does it purposefully. It is like a perfectly choreographed play. And as you think about this triumphal entry today and as you think about everything that happens in Easter week, and I hope we'll spend time this week of any week to meditate on some of those things, we ought to think about it as a perfectly choreographed play. Jesus does everything with attention. He stands before his uh, accusers intentionally as they throw insults at him, and he stands silently so that he can be a lamb before the slaughter silently. He receives and allows them to put the crown and the robe on him so that he could be for us the fulfillment of our the kingship we need to be our saving king. He does all of those things with intentionality. And folks, if that doesn't move us to praise, and it should, we ought to be moved to praise realizing that that same Jesus works in each of our lives today the exact same way. He's the sovereign king. And the things that come into our lives, the things that we face each day, the opportunities that we have, all of those things are intentional from the Lord. They're purposeful. And so we can live out a life of praise to God, knowing that he directs our lives. It's not an accident. It's not a mistake. The opportunities and the challenges that each of us face. Last thing I want us to see, and we'll conclude with this, is that as Jesus comes in, he not only is this prophetic fulfillment, he not only picks a fight, but that he's pointing ahead to something in the future as well. So we've seen it, how he grabs back to Zechariah and tells us, I'm coming as the fulfillment of this king. And we've seen those verses that point to that. I want us to point ahead as well. Revelation 19 is one last passage you can turn to if you have a Bible handy. As we read a little bit of a different picture of Jesus coming and another reason that we're given to praise him and to live a life of praise to him. Chapter 19 of Revelation. This is a prediction of future things to come. A picture of Jesus in a different way. Starting in verse 1, we'll jump around just a little bit, and we'll conclude with this. It says, verse 1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud, the loud voice of a great multitude, another crowd, gathered together, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And jump down with me to verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And then verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, no more donkey, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, 
were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, indeed, we we desire that you would display before us your kingship and the majesty of it in a way that would move us to praise. Lord, I pray that you would not let us think of praise as something we just do here on Sunday morning in song, but Lord, that you would expand our vision that we might live out our life in praise and exaltation to you. And we especially pray this Easter week that you would help us to do that. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you that you come not with what we think we need, but with what we most certainly need from your hand. Perfect salvation for us, perfect fulfillment picking a fight on our behalf, and in all of these things, pointing ahead to your fullness of victory, which we will one day experience in your eternal kingdom. We praise you for it now. We ask that you lift our hearts to praise in it, even now as we sing and in this week ahead, as we live our lives before you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.